Ruth chapter 3, verses 8 to 18 today. And I'll just pray to start. Father, I just pray that you'll help us to continue to grow in an understanding of redemption. Lord, you being our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, the one who buys us out of our slavery, who restores us, who marries us. And Lord, you secure our future. So we just praise you for that, Father. And we just love this story of Ruth and Boaz, this love story. And Lord, I pray that we can just fall more and more in love with you as we understand more and more about how much you love us and what you've done for us and your desire for us. So we just praise you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, because chapter 3 is a continuous section, I'm just going to read what we did last week and then recap it quickly and then move on to finish it off because otherwise it's a bit disjointed. So I'm going to read Ruth chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. And it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So, just a few things from last week. Ruth laying down at Boaz's feet was a sign of submission. She was taking the place of a servant, and we learnt last week that a servant would often lie at the feet of their master to be ready at their beck and call to do whatever the master wanted them to do. So for us, application in the New Testament, we are encouraged to come humbly to Jesus as a bondservant. And a bondservant is a servant for love, for life. It's a person who's willingly giving themselves to their master to do whatever the master wants. A servant who has willingly forsaken all to permanently stay with the master. And Jesus sets the example. So I've got Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. It's from the Amplified Bible. It says, let the same attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility, who, although being essentially one with God and in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God, did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained but stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity, so as to assume the guise of a servant, slave or bondservant, in that he became like men and was born as a human being. And after he had appeared in human form, he abased and humbled himself still further and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because he stooped so low, God has highly exalted him and has freely bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, 
it says there that we should have the same mind as Christ. Well, the apostles did. And just a quick example, Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Now am I trying to win the favor of men or God? Do I seek to please men? If I was still seeking popularity with men, I should not be a bondservant of Christ, the Messiah. So, whether a man pleaser or a God pleaser, can't be both. Now, the next main point was that Ruth met Boaz at the threshing floor. And as we learned last week, that represents a place of separation and sacrifice. And as Jesus describes this, it's a place where we die to self. So just a quick verse to show what I mean. It's Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? And another thing that we learnt last week was the biblical example of romance. A man and a woman getting to know each other and getting married. And we compared how... Ruth and Boaz got to know each other and fall in love. We compared that with how people generally fall in love, so-called, today. What people call dating. And last week we defined dating in today's culture as spending time with each other, just with each other most of the time, like just the two of you, with no accountability, no limits on physical intimacy, and with little or no commitment or respect expected. So this week, I want to just build on that just a little bit and ask the question, what is the alternative to dating? And the answer is a Christ-centered courtship. And I've just got a slide here. It shows you the difference between the two. So dating versus courting. It's gameplay versus build vision. Dating is eventful. Courting is intentional. Dating is pleasurable. Courting is purposeful for marriage. Dating ends with another date. Courting ends in marriage. Dating is self-centered. Courting is God-centered. Dating has no accountability. Courting has accountability. Dating is based on hormonal decisions. And courting is based on holy decisions. So that's just a quick recap there. So what is a Christ-centered courtship? Basically, one definition is this. A Christ-centered courtship is when a man and a woman prayerfully and purposefully seek to determine if marriage is in God's plan for them. They are rooted in purpose, spiritual growth, and a desire to be with whom God has chosen for them. The couple is not trying each other out, like you know, you go and try a car and do a test drive type thing, but rather courting their brother or sister in Christ to lead to a godly marriage. So what's the difference? Well, the boundaries we have in our courtship to keep it focused on Christ are the following. Another way of saying this is, what does a Christ-centered courtship look like in practice? So first thing is, commit to saving all sexual activities for marriage, including kissing. Commit to avoid thinking or talking about certain subjects that may cause you to struggle with sexual thoughts. Three, and I think this is the most important one, Make spirituality 
your lifeline. Commit to sharing your individual walks with God with each other. This includes having regular devotions, Bible reading together, and daily prayer, amongst other things. And this becomes the foundation of a godly marriage, a Christ-centered marriage. The fourth one, learn how to vocalize your emotions rather than physically expressing them. So as your spiritual lives grow, the intimacy in your relationship heightens. For example, Marissa and I, we used to write poems and letters to each other when we were courting, expressing our appreciation of and our love for each other in place of physical touch and kissing and stuff like that. And the last one there is no outings without a chaperone or at least be in a public place with other people around to maintain accountability. So how do you go from dating to courting? Well, there's a change that needs to happen in you as a person first. The first step is surrendering your love life to Christ. Understand that Jesus is all you need. Jesus, God, is your ultimate source of fulfillment and love. You will never find what you need in another person. It's always Jesus has everything you need. So don't expect to find it from anyone else. Understand that a godly wife is a gift from God, so don't be on the prowl. Wait for God to reveal the person to you. Pray and ask God to take hold of your romantic desires and lead you where he wants you to go. Also, I really encourage you guys, and anyone listening, to study what the Bible has to say about relationships, marriage, marital roles, husband and wife, and to understand what godly love looks like. And this is a blueprint of what a Christ-centered relationship should look like. And there's lots in the Bible on these topics. Now, why is courting important? And how is the result different to dating? Well, if the courtship does not lead to marriage, the couple is able to walk away from the relationship without any emotional baggage, having been spiritually edified and respectful of one another as followers of Christ. So I'm just going to repeat that bit. If the courtship does not lead to marriage, the couple is able to walk away from the relationship without any emotional baggage, having been spiritually edified and respectful of one another as followers of Christ. In other words, you're just good friends. You're really good friends, but we just know that it's not God's will for you to get married, and that's it. You still remain good friends. Now, people ask the people who could talk about dating, if you love someone, how can it be wrong? Or they might say it this way, how can something that feels so good be called wrong? Well, what does the Bible say about that? About following your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is exceedingly perverse and corrupt and severely, mortally sick. Who can know it? That is, perceive, understand, and be acquainted with his own heart and mind. And, of course, only God knows our hearts. We need to ask God to help us to know our hearts. So what this means is, if we're not led by the Spirit and in obedience to God's Word, we are being led by our own selfish desires, which is our sinful nature. And the book of Proverbs has a couple of good insights here. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That's a good one for young people today. 
or anyone really. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. And Proverbs 16.25, There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. So again, coming back to our question, if people ask if you love someone, how can it be wrong? Or how can something that feels so good today be called wrong? Well, the answer is that it feels good according to your sinful nature, but it is actually destroying you. Now, when it comes to lying and stealing and anger and wrath and violence, you know what society does? Society knows that if there's too much lying, if there's too much stealing, if there's too much violence, then society, as we know, will just collapse. It will just stop because no one will trust each other and no one can do anything. Everything's being destroyed. And so what society does is they have rules. They put rules in place to prevent and limit lying and stealing and violence, for example. However, when it comes to lust... When it comes to sexual immorality, the opposite is true. In schools, we have the safe schools thing where sexual immorality is promoted as an alternative lifestyle at a very young age. It's a terrible situation. On the movies, the government has legislated same-sex marriage, for example. It's all being celebrated. It's all being said, oh, you know, it's love. It's good. No, it's not. It's sexual immorality. It's adultery. It's wrong. Now, why the difference in the way we deal with these fruits of our sinful nature? Well, the consequences of lying and stealing and violence are very obvious and very immediate. But the consequences of lust, and not just lust for sex, but also lust for money and other things, is more long-term. It's a slow fade. It's a gradual decay. And I think that people don't see the connection between cause and effect. They don't see the connection between the decay in the society, the breakdown of our society and sexual immorality. And what's really bad is that in the church, this is one area where the church has compromised and is suffering greatly. Today, it's not uncommon for the people in the church ministry to be living together or fornicating or even be in same-sex relationships. So basically, the world has influenced the church, which means the church has ceased to influence the world. The battle of influence has been largely lost because of compromise with lust for money and sex. As the scriptures say, the salt has lost its saltiness, our light is hidden under a basket, and our wickedness is in glaring sight for all to see, so that people will blaspheme our Heavenly Father. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew five, thirteen to 16 Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. Well, what are we doing? We're putting our light under a basket. Our salt is no longer salty. It no longer has that preserving influence. And 
instead of our good deeds shining out, bringing praise to God, our wickedness is there for all to see and causing people to blaspheme God. So, as I said, we're not doing anything about it. We put up with it. We go along with it. We watch those movies. A lot of Christians go to watch you know, movies with sex scenes and stuff like that because they can't see the connection between cause and effect. For example, many would ask, how does watching a sex scene on a movie adversely affect my marriage? We still get along. We're still married. We're still happy. As I said, it's a slow fade. The consequences are very serious, but they take longer to eventuate. And I want to just talk about one last effect of this sexual immorality, this lust for money, power, and sex in the world today, how it's promoted and how it's destroying us, but especially in the church. This is one of the key statements about this. It says, when purity is lost, then so is our power. When purity is lost, then so is our power. There is no power without purity. And I want to use Joshua as an example. Just going to read a section from Joshua chapter 6 and 7, just parts of it, and just go through the story a little bit, because it's a really good example of what happened then that we can use to understand what's happening in the church today. Joshua had just defeated Jericho, and it was an amazing display of God's power. Everyone is celebrating, but something had gone terribly wrong. There was sin in the camp. The nation was rotting from within and would soon experience defeat. I'll start verse 27 in chapter 6 of Joshua. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his reputation spread throughout the land. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of those dedicated things. So the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. So here we are with the nation celebrating, and yet God is angry with them because they have compromised, they have sinned, and it's because of lust for money in this case. It continues, verse 2, Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai, since there are so few of them. Don't make all our people struggle to go up there. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay, threw dust on their heads, and bowed face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. Then Joshua cried out, O sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you are going to let the Amorites kill us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has fled from its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the other people living in the land hear about it, they will surround us and wipe our name off the face of the earth. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? But the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen 
Some of the things that I committed must be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, but have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. In verse 12, That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove those things from among you. It's very clear, I think. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove those things from among you. We will have no power until we have purity. So, in summary, Achan chose not to control his desire for lust or riches, the things of the world, and it resulted in death, defeat and shame down the track. And what's important is it doesn't just affect the person, but it affects the family and the entire nation. And for us today, if someone sins, then it not just affects their own personal life, but their family and the whole church. So things might still look good in the church today, but on the inside, we're rotting from within. And it's going to lead to defeat and shame. It's just a matter of time. So what's the solution like Joshua in the Bible? The Bible commands us to root out the evil in our lives, the lust for the things of the world. Now, it's going to take dedicated time to search the scriptures and see what God's will is for us. Otherwise, we'll end up shamed and our Heavenly Father blasphemed on our account. I just want to read two examples of prayers and what God says about this. First one is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So that's the New Living Version there. But I like what it says. It says, Point out anything in me that offends you. We have to realize that our sinful nature is offensive to God. And if we've got parts of our lives which are not handed over to God, submitted to God, then we are offensive to God. And the words of God to Jeremiah, in Jeremiah fifteen nineteen, this is how the Lord responds. If you return to me, I will restore you so you can continue to serve me. If you speak good words rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman. You must influence them. Do not let them influence you. So the key words there, you must influence them. Do not let them influence you. So that's our recap and a little bit of a uh, <laughs> encouragement and exaltation about standing up against the attack of the world against the church, how the world is influencing us to be sexually immoral. Okay, moving on, let's go back to Ruth, chapter 3, and verse 6, just to get the context. And we're going to read right through to the end of the chapter, so 6 through to 18. So it says, She went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the men were startled. 
and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley, or six measures of barley, and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So verse 8, Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. So first thing, remember that there's nothing immoral or immodest about this. By her actions, Ruth was declaring to Boaz that she was submitting to him as a servant. Just try and think of what's happening. You've got Boaz here laying down sleeping. He's guarding the grain from thieves and he wakes up and he finds someone at his feet. And probably his first reaction is, is, oh, someone's trying to steal something. But then he realizes, oh, no, it's a woman. Who is this woman? And then he asks who she is. And then verse 9. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. So Ruth identifies herself and she makes a simple request. But she starts with the words, take your maidservant. And she identifies herself as your maidservant. Basically, she's saying, I'm your bond slave. Again, Ruth is showing great humility and submission. She is presenting herself as Boa's servant. Now, Under your wing, here, she boldly asked Boaz to take her in marriage. And this phrase can also be translated as, spread the corner of your garment over me. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to spread the corner of your garment over me? Well, this is a culturally relevant way for the Jews to say, I am a widow, please take me as your wife. And one commentator says, Even to the present day, when a Jew marries a woman, he throws a skirt or end of his talith over her to signify that he has taken her under his protection. So this custom is still in effect in Jewish culture today. Now, we also see this with God and Israel. It's Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 8. It says, I spread my wing over you, 
and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord. So this concept is right through the Old Testament there. Now it says, for you are a close relative. Now Ruth is identifying Boaz as her close relative. Now, as we know, the close relative, the word there in Hebrew is goel, and it means a kinsman redeemer. So what this means is that Elimelech, even though he's dead, he has the right to have his family name carried on. God wants the families to carry on and the inheritance to be handed down, the land to stay in the clan or the family. Now, as Goel, Boaz had the responsibility to do this for Elimelech. And this could only happen through Boaz marrying Ruth and providing children to carry on the name of Elimelech. And so Ruth boldly, yet humbly and properly, sought her rights. So just like we, as a bride of Christ, have the invitation to come boldly, yet humbly, before the throne of grace, where we will also find help in time of need. So. Again, Boaz is a type of Christ. You are a near kinsman, said Ruth, my redeemer, my Goel, my only hope. Please cover me. Please redeem me. And so now the question is, will Boaz do it? Will this wealthy, strong individual stretch out his robe to cover a Moabitish woman? Ruth is from Moab. This new kid on the block, this one who has no credibility, no credentials, nothing to offer him, poor, just a widow, what would he do? Would he be a Goel? Would his garment stretch that far? Would his love for her stretch that far? And that's the question we might be wrestling with right now. I'm bankrupt, we say. I'm Moabitish or worldly in my nature. Would the Lord spread his covering over me? Would the Lord take me? And the answer is yes. Praise God. And Ephesians 2, 2 2-5, it says, All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. We were very Moabitish. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Ruth, when she was living back in Moab, that nation was an enemy nation to the nation of Israel. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. So what does verse 4 say? But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. It doesn't matter what we're like. Because of his mercy and his love for us, he will do it. Verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. So, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. You did not go after young men. So, it looks like, and most people agree, that there was a big age difference between Ruth and Boaz, Ruth being a lot younger than Boaz. Now, This shows something wonderful about Boaz. He had the right to force himself upon Ruth as her Goel, but he did not. He wasn't going to say, there's a woman I want, and I have her by right. It's my right to marry her to be the Goel. I'm just going to go and marry her, whether she likes it or not. 
No, he didn't do that. He was kind enough not to act as Goel, or Redeemer, or Saviour, towards Ruth until she desired, until she asked for it to happen. This is a picture of how Jesus relates to us, the bride. He doesn't force us, he just receives us when we choose to come. And that applies to the day we get saved, when we ask God to forgive us of our sins for the first time. But it also applies to our walk with him. He wants us to meet with him on a daily basis. But he doesn't force us to. He just waits for us to respond to him. So what does the Bible say about this? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-6 to This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is a message God gave to the world at just the right time. So who does God want to be saved? Everyone. He wants everyone to understand the truth. But obviously not everyone is going to understand the truth. So God desires for everyone to come to know the truth, but he's not going to force himself on people. He respects our free will. Now coming back to that part in that verse, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. You did not go after young men. Now this shows us something about Ruth, something good about Ruth. She based her attraction to Boaz more on respect than on image or appearance. And it's a real tragedy that today many people fall in love with an image or an appearance rather than with a person we can really respect. And when the mirage disappears, when the image fades, then so does the skin-deep commitment that people call love these days. And we have an application here for us and our relationship with Christ. Boaz had strength, wealth, pedigree, and prosperity. He had everything except a bride, someone upon whom he could pour out his love. Now, God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need our love, but he's chosen to desire our love. It's a decision that he's made. So, like Boaz, Jesus has strength, wealth, pedigree, and prosperity. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He too has it all. But he also desires a bride. Boaz is a picture or type of Christ. And guess who we are? We are the bride of Christ. And anyone who will fall before his nail-pierced feet and say, cover me, he will certainly not cast out. John chapter 6 verse 37. So what amazes me, really amazes me, in this phrase, and this is the application here, is where it says, you have shown more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. So this is what our greater than Boaz, Jesus, says to us. When you came into my field, that was a blessing. When you showed up at church, when you had morning devotions, when you came into the field to glean the wheat of my word, you blessed me. I know you could have gone fishing or surfing. I know you could have stayed home. I know you could have slept in, read a book, surfed the internet, worked extra hours, watched YouTube videos or movies, played computer games, whatever it might be. But you came into my field and blessed me by spending time with me. And now you're blessing me even more by wanting me to cover you, to redeem you, to rescue you. It's not an obligation to me, it's an elation for me. You could have sought some young man, some new fad, some exciting trip, some new hobby or career, or another relationship, 
but instead you sought me, the Ancient of Days. You put aside all those other alluring pursuits and you sought me to cover you. You submitted to me. You're coming to me for your security. You have been a blessing to me. Personally, I think it's one of the most important things we need to understand is God's attitude towards us. I used to think, and sometimes I still do think because I tend to forget who God is sometimes, that God must be so patient to put up with someone like me who is so slow to learn, who lets him down so often, and is so fickle and weak. But God isn't putting up with me or you. He's enjoying me and you. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus chooses to overlook all our failings and instead focus on the attempts that we make to respond to his love, no matter how small they might be. We need to understand that any effort we make to return or respond to his love, to abide in him, to rest in him, to seek him, brings him great joy. He is ecstatic. Remember his thoughts toward us are all for good and they can't be counted. That's who God is. That's his thoughts toward us. Now, as a little analogy here, I've met parents who have had children who have gone off the rails and have rebelled in a big way. Yes, they bring pain to the family. But what are the loving parents thinking? Well, if my child ever does respond to me, then I suppose I should do the right thing and pretend to be glad to hear from them. After all... They really don't deserve my love anymore. No way. (laughs) No way. Those parents are hanging out for any sign of relationship, any reciprocation of love, and they rejoice and are exuberant at even the smallest response to their love. You know, it might be, oh, I got a phone call from Brad last night, or I got a text from Sophie, or whatever it might be. You know, my kids are starting to talk to me. This is awesome. It's the same way it is with God. That's the heart of our Father toward us. And I've got a few scriptures which really have encouraged me, and I hope they will encourage you too, to show God's attitude toward us. Jeremiah 31.20 Now Ephraim, who is Ephraim? He's one of the sons of Jacob, and he became a tribe in Israel. And he represents the northern kingdom, and he. Well, the tribe of Ephraim led the northern tribes into idolatry. They were one of the first to go into idolatry. But what does God say about Ephraim, this continually rebelling tribe of Israel? How does God refer to him? He refers to Ephraim in Jeremiah 31.20 as my dear son. So is Ephraim my dear son? The answer is yes. Is he a darling child and beloved? Yes. For as often as I speak against him, I do earnestly remember him still. So speak against him means to discipline. Therefore my affection is stirred and my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy, pity and loving kindness for him, says the Lord. Now, God does discipline us. God has to do that because otherwise we're just going to keep going the wrong way and we would never know it. But don't take God's discipline as God having a nasty attitude toward us or being sick of us. He's doing it so we'll come back to him. 
I love those words. Therefore, my affection is stirred and my heart yearns for him. God's affection is stirred toward us, even when we're sinning. And my heart yearns for him. When we're separated from him, he's not angry with us. He's yearning for us. As it says in the New Testament, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. That God would feel this way towards me and you just amazes me and humbles me. And I want to go now to Matthew 9.36. It says, But when he, Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. So it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. So notice that attitude that God has toward us. It doesn't say, When he saw the multitudes, Jesus despised them. It's not, but when he saw the multitudes, Jesus was frustrated with them. It's not, but when he saw the multitudes, Jesus was angry with them. It's not, when Jesus saw the multitudes, Jesus said, oh no, not more people with problems, they're giving me a migraine. It's not, but when he saw the multitudes, Jesus remembered their sins. It's not, when he saw the multitudes, Jesus just sighed and shook his head in disappointment. It's not, but when he saw the multitudes, Jesus turned around and walked away. But we can have those perceptions of God. We can feel that God would do or act like that toward us. But it's not like that. He is always looking at us with compassion, looking upon us with compassion. He's moved with compassion for us. In other words, Jesus has a soft spot in his heart for you and for me. So learn to recognize Satan's lies. Satan's goal is to try and make us feel guilty and condemned, and it's not true. God doesn't just love us, meaning that he's committed to us and he respects us, but he actually likes us. You know the difference there between loving someone and liking someone? He actually likes us. He likes to be with us. He looks forward to spending time with us. Never forget what Jesus said about the prodigal son in Luke 15, 20-24. Just read a bit of it. So he got up, the prodigal son, and came to his own father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity and tenderness for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him fervently. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I no longer deserve to recognize the son of yours. But the father said to his bondservants, Bring quickly the best robe, the festive robe of honor, and put it on him, and give him a ring for his hand and sandals for his feet. And bring out that wheat-fattened calf and kill it, and let us revel and feast and be happy and make merry. Because this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to revel and feast and make merry. So, Another scripture says that when one person repents, what do the angels do? They rejoice. There's rejoicing in all of heaven over one sinner who repents. It doesn't stop there though. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the purpose of Jesus' death was to reconcile us back to himself. He pleads with us to come back to him. 
Now again, it is not an obligation for him to make time for us, to help us, to pray for us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to bless us. Rather, it's his delight to do those things. He wants to do it. He is a loving parent who desires, loves to spend time with his kids. And what brings him the most joy is when his kids want to spend time with him. It's just like us as parents. We receive joy and our kids want to spend time with us. So, in effect, Jesus didn't suffer and die on the cross just because he had to, but because he wanted to. It was something he was willing to do for us. Not obligated to do for us, but willing to do for us. He wanted to die on the cross for us. Yes, he was obeying his father, but his motive wasn't obligation. He wasn't saying, yeah, I better do this because it's the right thing to do. I know I always do the things that please the Father. But rather, it's a delight. Yes, there is joy in pleasing the Father, but there's also this reward, this joy, the fulfillment of what would be accomplished. And Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Guess who the labor of his soul is? It's us. Him dying on the cross was redeeming us. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. We are the labor of his soul. We are what satisfy and fulfill him. And I used to wonder how I could ever be a blessing to God, but not now. I know, and you know, that we can be a blessing to God. I have nothing to give but me. The only thing that God wants for me is my heart, my affections, and my love. My heart, my affections, and my love. He wants me, the inner part of me. When I give that to him, everything else follows. Because I love him, I will obey him. So properly understanding the phrase, you have shown more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, will revolutionize our relationship with God. When we realize God is living within us, just waiting, watching, longing, yearning with anticipation, excited about his affection stirred, looking and listening for us to talk to him, to spend time with him, to pray to him, to listen to him through the word, to talk about him with others, then we will start to be excited to spend time with him. However, if we believe that God is bored with us and frustrated with us and fed up with us and disappointed with us, then any enthusiasm we have will soon fade and our Christian walk will soon become an obligation and not a source of joy. We will start to think, well, God's doing the right thing by me, even though he's got better things to do, so I better do the right thing by him, even though I've got better things to do too. It becomes, I have to instead of I want to or I get to. Now, application for marriage. Marriage can become like this as well. When love is lost and you're just going through the motions, the only solution to this is to re-establish your relationship with God, your love for God, to reconnect yourself to God's agape love, to return to your first love in Christ. Because it's only when God's love is flowing through you that you will have something or anything to give to your spouse or others around you. And remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love. We cannot love other people the way God wants us to unless we're being led by the Spirit. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, Ruth probably sees herself as a Gentile, a Moabite, a stranger. But Boaz describes her as a virtuous woman. Now this word virtuous is the Hebrew word 
Havil, H-A-H-V-I-L, Havil. And it talks about valor, like when the Bible uses the term to describe heroes in the Bible, a mighty man of valor, uh, a mighty man of Havil. So it's courage, it's strength, and it's Ruth's courage and strength shown her virtue that make her a hero as well. Ruth is a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. And one translator renders Boaz's statement, Thou art a bride worth winning. I like that. Thou art a bride worth winning. This is honestly the Lord's heart toward us. We think he's stuck with us, when in actuality he's in love with us because he sees us as a bride worth winning. He's chasing us, wooing us, but he will never force himself upon us. Verse 12, Ruth chapter 3. Now it is true that I am a close relative, However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So, it is true that Jesus is my kinsman, my near kinsman, my close relative, my goel, that he, God himself, became flesh, became like me, and was tempted in all points like I am. And Hebrews 2 gives us a lot of information about the incarnation, how Jesus is a high priest who relates to us because he became just like us. But here's a problem, here's an interesting twist to this story. There is a nearer kinsman, one who came before the incarnation of Jesus, one who has a prior claim to us. Who is this nearer kinsman? Well, obviously in the story, it's a relative that's more closely related to Elimelech than Boaz. But for us, with Boaz being a type of Christ, who is this nearer kinsman? I'll tell you next week. When we go through chapter 4. We'll keep going. So in the story, though, Boaz could not exercise his right as kinsman redeemer until this closer kinsman redeemer relinquished his rights toward Ruth. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. So, in other words, before it got too light, before sun up. So Ruth was at Boaz's feet, then rose up before the break of day. And the best place for us to be is at the feet of our Lord before we rise up to start our day too. Morning devotions, time in the Word. Still in verse 14, then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Remember, it wasn't just Boaz sleeping there. It was a public place. There's other people sleeping there as well. Also, he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. So why does Boaz not want others to know, or people outside his circle of friends there, his workers, to know that a woman was at the threshing floor? Well, my understanding is that Boaz doesn't want the other Goel to have prior knowledge. Boaz wants to go to him with this as a surprise to the other kinsman redeemer. He wanted to tell him personally. Now, why did he measure six measures of barley? Well, this is a proposition, right? What do we give to each other these days? We give each other flowers and chocolates and stuff like that. Well, Boaz doesn't want Ruth to go home empty-handed, so because they didn't have chocolates, he sent her home with six measures of barley. 
Now, why six measures of barley? Well, I suggest, it's just an idea, but I suggest it was because God worked six days in creation. He didn't rest until the seventh day when his work was complete. So I think Boaz is sending a message through Ruth to Naomi saying, I am going to work and not rest until my work is complete, until she is my wife. Now Naomi understood this as we see in her response in verse 18. So let's continue on. Verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the men had done for her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So what did Naomi say? The man will not rest. So Naomi understood Boaz's message. Sit still, Ruth, rest and watch and see what he'll do. So what's our role in our redemption? What do we have to do? Nothing. It's Jesus who does everything. It's all grace. This is a second covenant, a new covenant. It's by grace. It's not by our works. Sit still, Ruth, rest and watch and see what he'll do. We can look back on the cross and we can see what God has done for us. We just rest in his completed work, the finished work of the cross. Now, for Ruth, just to finish off here, for Ruth, this would be a bit of a um, a trying time. This would be a bit of a soul-searching day for her. She's just asked to be married by the kinsman redeemer and suddenly she's found out that there's a closer kinsman redeemer. She might have to marry someone she doesn't know. Maybe she was feeling anxious. I don't know. Who's she going to get married to? She doesn't know yet. Because if this other kinsman redeemer wants to marry her and take the property and redeem the property, then she'll have to marry him. The other guy has first choice, first dibs. But that's going to be decided that very day. Now for us, I praise God that Jesus didn't rest until he had accomplished our salvation. And now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and we are his bride. Sitting implies he stopped working, he's resting. His work is finished. Just like Boaz said, I'm not going to rest until I finished my role as the kinsman redeemer to redeem you and the property, including marrying you. So has Jesus, he didn't stop. He went right to the cross, he finished the work and now he's resting and we are at his side. And so we're going to see that played out next week. So next week, we'll finish the book of Ruth and get the big picture of what Jesus has done for us and accomplished for us. Father, I just thank you for the amazing concepts and truths in this chapter of Ruth. Boaz, a picture of Christ, our kinsman redeemer. The one who's in love with Ruth. The one who's just jumping up and down with joy because Ruth is desiring to be his wife. It's not an obligation to do the work. It's a joy. It's something he wants to do. And we see that as we read in those scriptures that it wasn't an obligation for Jesus. It was a joy. Lord, I just thank you so much. I'm just overwhelmed by the fact that you love us and like us and you just find so much joy in relationship with us. Lord, even the littlest things that we do, even a small response, you're just rejoicing. And I just thank you for that, Father. Help us to remember that. Help us to realize that 
We bring joy to your heart. And that's why the Psalms always say, Bless the Lord. Lord, how can I bless the Lord? Well, I can bless you by giving my affections, by giving you my heart, by giving my loyalty, by giving you my love, by just returning your love. Lord, help me and help everyone else here, Lord, just to give our affections, give our heart, give our love to you. And Lord, everything else will follow. If we love you, then we'll obey you. If we love you, then we're seeking you. If we love you, then we're learning from you. So we just thank you for all these things and pray that you'll bless us this week and cause us to continue to grow in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.